You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast may contain language and discussions of a frank and adult nature, and spoilers regarding the films discussed are always to be expected. Thank you for joining us. Now start the show, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! of human centipede without all the poo eating you see you're providing all these really awesome clips that are not being recorded on your show court if you want to steal from this this broadcast go right ahead feel free who says i haven't been recording since the moment i came online oh okay well there you go (laughs) my my main rule is never use clips from other people's shows even if i'm on it because that's just disrespectful i don't want to like you know snag somebody for something they said on their show but on my show it's fair game well you have my explicit permission because i don't have a soundboard set up so uh, it's it's just going to waste if if you don't use it it you you can uh, feel free to take anything i've said on well i i've said a lot of things so maybe i shouldn't say this but you can take whatever i've said and use it it's fine yeah you're going to regret giving me permission like that, guys. I'm really good at finding things out of context that make you sound like a horrible person. Uh, well, There's it's... stuff in context that makes you sound like a terrible person, but I'm not going to say what they are until like, I'm going to make you go find them. But, That's you know. the game. Yeah, you have to look for yourself. This yeah. feels like a trick you guys are making for me to go back to the beginning of your podcast and really look into everything you guys I, have said. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I'd, I'd say maybe start like what, episode uh, 50-ish and maybe move on from there? I don't know. <laughs> Dan, Daniel might have a better uh, latch on on uh, what where we started actually getting decent. <laughs> I think I think I mean episode three was ravenous, and I think that was pretty solid personally. Huh. Well, uh, fuck, I guess we were better than I even thought we were. I mean, we've had our we've had our ups and downs, you know. But uh, you know, you're always going to be your own worst critic. Like I still don't like my own show. <laughs> yeah, that just that's just weird. <laughs> the, the beauty of this show for me at this point is that I put virtually no effort into it. I just show up and have a beer and talk and people seem to like it. So it's fine. Yeah. So you've been listening to us banter now, and this is, they must be destroyed on site episode 138. I'm your host Lee. That wig doesn't go with a blue eyed mannequin. Russell. I'm joined by, <laughs> joined by my co-host Daniel. I'll be caught one day, but not by a woman. Harper, how you doing, sir? I'm doing fine, thank you. My <laughs> no eyes have been gouged out. My my eyes have been gouged out either by uh, buzzards or by uh, flaming sticks. I can't tell which, yeah. uh, but either way, blue eyes and that wig definitely don't good. <laughs> I can tell that because I'm blind. You see, so yeah, yeah. And we're very, very happy to have our special guest uh, on here tonight. Court, I'd say it was Ritual Murder PsyOps. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I like my intro. And by special guest, do you mean special needs? Because that fits. <laughs> hey, I wasn't going to uh, assign any sort of, uh, you know, slot for you. But uh, if indeed you are special needs and you're proud about it, just to say it. I've got no problem with my own particular special needs, which just happen to be a need for an emotional support squirrel, but it really inhibits my ability to fly. 
so I think most people listening to the show already know your podcast. Um, actually, you, you do a couple different podcasts, and we will get into that at the end of the show and uh, get you to promote your stuff. But it's an extreme pleasure to have you here, sir, and uh, thank you for doing the show. I've been listening to your show for quite a while now, so I'm very, very honored to be a guest as well, believe it or not. I don't know if you guys want to believe it, but you better. <laughs> we always sort of doubt it, but, uh, you we, know, people... We keep... are clearly the best movie podcast out there. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know why more people aren't aren't coming on this show anyway, you know. Really, we should we should be the where the projection booth is now. That's where we should be. That's my opinion. That, that fucking Mike White. Fuck that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, Mike's a good dude. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I I wish I had the, uh, the the time and dedication that guy has to uh, to fucking doing his shows. Um, yeah, I wish I could do that as well, and I could also wish that I could have it funded to be able to do that. Like, if I could support my current status of life, to which I'm accustomed by podcasting. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. pipe dream right there. Yeah, yeah. But we're going to be covering, and this is the first in a sort of two-part collaboration between this podcast and Cinema PsyOps. So we are going to be covering the first two films in the Blind Dead Quadrility. Quadrilogy? Quadrility? It's, it's not a word. Tombs of the Blind Yeah, it's, it's tetralogy anyway. Quadrology is a fake thing that somebody made up because they didn't know tetralogy. Oh, Whereas well, tetralogy but... is a completely natural thing that comes genetically out of like just people making words up. But quadrilogy is made up. That's Look at all the stuff I'm learning tonight. It's amazing. Well, well, tetralogy is from the original Latin that it, you know, like where trilogy and all of that kind of comes from. Tetralogy is the natural thing that comes from Latin. So it's actually derived from the root. Whereas quadrology is something that was made up for an alien box set when they didn't bother to actually look for tetralogy to know that that was a word. I like Alien 3 a lot. <laughs> Uh, I told Court in in in, uh, in our Facebook chat, you're probably going to get along with my hosts even better than I do. And look, it's already <laughs> happened. <laughs> well, this this whole guest spot is just an elaborate ruse to snag Daniel away and saddle you with Matt for the rest of your existence. <laughs> hey, I got along great with Matt, so it might work out. We, if we if we switch hosts, it, it might be a good thing. Who knows? <laughs> he certainly would like to be encouraged to drink on the air more. That's for sure. Oh well, yeah. Yeah, well, I, there's there's a there's a more encouraged to drink on the air than this show. I don't know that that's possible. No, that's oh, why I'm I, saying Matt would love to go to your show so he could drink on the air. I oh, kind of forbade it for him. I see, I see. Yeah, because he, he he usually has to sit in the same room with Matt and record live and do the entire show live, like all the promos, all the music, everything. He has to sit through all that with Matt drinking. So, yeah, yeah I, can I have imagine. To- I have to do it all live because if I don't do it all live and I don't record everything in order every single week. If it isn't in exact order, Matt has no concept of continuity, so he tells jokes or makes references to things that <laughs> haven't happened yet or or are going to happen like weeks and weeks on down the road. So I never tell him anything in advance. He literally just shows up and we do it on the night because it's the only way to get the most natural performance out of him. Otherwise, it's all screwed up. First off, we're going to hit some uh, listener comments, and both of these are basically sourced thanks to Court Psyops at the very last moment. He's like, hey, send some fucking comments over to this poor schlub who's asking for comments on his own Facebook page. Not how I wrote it, but sure, that's my baby what I intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and the first one is from Court Psyops. <laughs> Why the hell would you want to work with Court Psyops? Well, that um, guy's a bastard for even asking that question. 
uh, well, I don't necessarily consider it work as so much uh, captivity more more than anything else. Like sort of a no, but I mean honestly, uh, it's it's been a sort of a team up I've been dreaming of for quite a while ever since I started listening to Cinema Psyops. So hey, we're making a dream come true tonight. It's good stuff. I mean, we I've already been on your show and it was amazing. <laughs> Had to return the favor. Maybe that won't be as as amazing for you on this show, <laughs> but we'll try. Well, in true honor of they must be destroyed on site, I am drinking on air, which I don't do normally at all. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. Uh, what are you drinking well, tonight, by the way? Um, I'm a I'm a rum and Coke kind of guy, and since I'm on the keto, that works out perfect. I'm just doing Coke Zero Sugar with it, and it's Bacardi 151 and Coke Zero Sugar. So I should be nice and loose by the time we even get to the second movie. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, what, what are you drinking, by the way, Daniel? I have a can of Arrogant Bastard right here. Oh, yeah. Uh, since Ever since my local liquor store started carrying the Arrogant Bastard 16-ounce cans six-packs, which are twelve I've been making that like a almost nightly occurrence in my in my uh, drinking rotation. So, If I'm not wrong, that's a hell of a deal for a six-pack of those pints for Oh, yeah, no, no. It's because it used to be like a 22-ounce bottle for like five ninety nine or whatever. Um, and so this is way, way cheaper on a per ounce basis. So uh, that was kind of one of those like must buy. And then, yeah, no, it's just been a regular, regular thing. I just have it all the time. That's a stout, right? So even being in a can won't affect it that much. Well, it's a, uh, uh, do we really want to get into this, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> we can I start do. Beer, sorry, we sorry. Can start Lee, 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 and I, Lee and I come out of the uh, beer nerd community, so I could explain this in detail. But no, it is not a stout. It is a, technically called an American strong ale, according to, you know, yada, yada, whatever, you know, rating. JCP bullshit. Um, yeah. It's basically, I used to call it like a Ruby IPA back when I cared about such things, which is sort of a made up category that only this beer exists in. But so it's definitely not a stout, but you know. Yeah. It's still big and it'll still kick your ass. So that's, that's yeah, pretty no, much the main it's, thing. It's good. It's good. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Well, I've always and, found a I found a problem for me with Pilsner taste coming out of a can. I prefer that more out of bottles or tap. But any red beers or like your your thicker, darker, more chewy chewy beers are okay in cans for me. I'm I'm of the uh, the thought that cans are better for everything, honestly. But uh, that's just me. But um, and I use I used to be I used to love just like the aesthetic of drinking out of a bottle. You know, getting it getting your beer out of a bottle. But uh, that was years ago. I love the self-defense option of having a beer out of a bottle in case you need it to open up somebody's face to get them to leave you alone. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, that, is, that a, is that something you run into often there, Court? Because, uh, uh, not since I moved out of Pittsburgh. No, Daniel. All right. <laughs> See, it's too bad Paul's, Paul couldn't show up tonight because he probably can confirm that like quickly. <laughs> our second comment is from our friend Darren Wilson from uh, the Psychosomatic Cast or the psychosomatic podcast whatever he's calling it whatever week he's doing it he's asking here of the two films we're doing i assume the two films we're doing anyway which one should i watch first because i don't think i've seen either or i'd ask a better question (laughs) honestly i'd just say watch the tombs of the blind dead first that's probably your best start off point for the series uh it sets down all the basic sort of tropes for the series for the most part I think, that, that the thing that's like, nice about the Blind Dead series, though, is each film is its own contained story. Right. They just they just are basically different variations on a theme of the Blind Dead. So mm-hmm. you literally come into it at any movie. The only problem is if you go to the later two of the series 
and you catch Ghost Galleon first, you may not want to go find any of the other ones. <laughs> it's a possibility. I'm a big fan of Night of the Seagulls, so I kind of enjoy that one as well. Uh, mm-hmm. If I had to rank them all, I would probably put that as my third. Sometimes it would flip-flop as my second. And I actually prefer the second movie we're talking about tonight because, well, first of all, it's the first one that I've ever watched. So that's why I'm saying you can watch them out of order and it doesn't matter. I mean, and I think they were even released that way where the return of the blind dead or evil dead may have even actually been brought overseas to us first. And then we got the other one second. It might've been uh, be, like all these movies were shot within like a couple years in Spain. So yeah, I think U.S. Uh, North American distribution was very much could have been, you know, out of order. I mean, we'll, we'll get into the trivia here of uh, what they were trying to promote one of these films as, uh, by the way. But all these films, they're not so much sequels as they are kind of like reboots or remakes almost in, in a way. Each one is like it's, it's all you're, you're right. It's, it's they're all their own self-contained stories. So uh, probably skip seeing ghost galleon first though i would say i yeah. agree of court on that uh, yeah. try try one of the other ones first and you know get into the groove and and uh, because ghost galleon is probably the most unlike all the other films uh, so. and yeah and yet it has the best title i mean the ghost galleon just kind of sounds it, 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 it sounds like an interesting film like yeah sure i mean you know how many films have like blank of the blank dead like as a, mm-hmm. as a structure you know in a title and uh, yeah, I know it all just kind of sounds the same and it runs together and I can't remember which fucking one is which anyway. So, but the ghost galleon, like that sounds like, oh yeah, that's like a merchant ivory film, but with zombies that are also knights, right? You know, that's the... also vampires and something else. Also and... vampires and like occasionally you see a boob and it's great. I just yeah. wish that the film would live up to that great title, though, Daniel. That's my only yeah. complaint. <laughs> uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen it, so I get to, uh, I get to uh, make that yeah. comment now. Oh, yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, we'll you, you're not wrong. It's an amazing title. <laughs> we'll see what you think in uh, the next episode we do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we can move on now to uh, what we, we actually watched. do have a third question that got posted. Um, oh, really? Yeah, when I posted it to my personal page on Facebook, uh, basically begging for some questions, we got one. My boy Ken from Rhode Island actually posted this one on my wall. If you've never seen these, are they must see movies? I would say three out of the four, definitely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, they, these are movies to see just for like the fact that Osario kind of created a new movie monster. Yeah. Like, this is this isn't a, re, a hammer retread of a Universal monster or anything like that. Even though they do have aspects of previous monsters, this is a wholly original movie monster that was created in this series. And just for that alone, these uh, movies in the series are worth checking out. And uh, again, Court's right. Check out everything else but Ghost Galleon first, then ease into Ghost Galleon afterwards. <laughs> Drink while watching them, watch them all in a row, and by the time you get to Ghost Galleon, you'll be in the right state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, yeah, if you, if you watch them all in order, and you see Ghost Galleon, then you get Night of Seagulls, you'll be like, okay, I can live with this. <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for the comments, people. Uh, very, very nice. We can move on now to what we've watched in the last little while. Daniel and I have nothing, so we will turn over to you, Mr. Psyops. Okay, I've been going through my 31 days of Halloween stuff lately, so I've been trying to jam in as many horror movies as I possibly can. I can't quite get one a day like a lot of people really strive for just one a day and hit all 31. 
Right. My thing is every day in October, I have to be watching something horror or Halloweenish related, whether it's like a dark, twisted sci-fi, like an alien invasion movie or just straight up horror. Or if it even takes place on Halloween, I'll let it go. Or if it has, you know, like a heaven and hell kind of thing to it or whatever. Most recently, within the last couple of days, I watched both the quarantine movies. Quarantine is a anglicized remake of the amazing film Wreck, if people aren't familiar with that. And it's okay. I mean, I've got a thing for Jennifer Carpenter. I kind of really enjoy watching her ever since the days of Dexter. And mm-hmm. she really does carry that film for quarantine. And it's it's a serviceable enough remake. It's straight up. And I guess a lot of people don't realize, but I do believe that that was made by the folks behind the Poughkeepsie tapes. The writers and directors of that crew ended up working on that quarantine film. Okay, that makes sense. Or at least the director did. And so that was kind of like the only thing that he had out there that was readily accessible for people to kind of show off for quite a while while Poughkeepsie tapes sat and, you know, just collected dust on a shelf somewhere with no mm-hmm. belief. Um, Quarantine 2 is not a remake or a re-imagining no. of the second Wreck movie. It is really kind of an uneven, lopsided mess of a film. I kind of have a crush on the main actress that was in that film. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but I kind of fell for her when watching The Finder, that short-lived Fox series of that was a spinoff from Bones. I don't oh, know really? if you guys remember that. Yeah. Uh, it had Michael Clark Duncan and uh, in it as well, and it, she was like the federal marshal lady that kept Mercedes working. Mercedes Mason. Yes, that is her. She's the main uh, stewardess who's fighting to keep herself and everyone else alive in the terminal. The, the titular character of Quarantine Two. The film's great. So and- this, this was not directed by Steven Spielberg then. <laughs> no, it's do they end up like, trapped in some like uh, Kafkaesque hellhole where they uh, can't return to their original country because it's been and then like zombies show up or something? I haven't uh, seen the film, but I'm kind uh, of imagining it now. You know, well, so. no, it's it's great at the beginning of the film when the, everything that's on the plane is nice and concise and it really builds up tension well, and you feel them being trapped. But then they make an emergency landing at the airport and then their plane gets the titular quarantine where they all can't leave. They get to come into a gate, but to go into the airport part is locked. That second security door is locked. So they try to exit from there to go somewhere else. And that takes them into like this baggage processing area. And once it hits that part of the film, you could pretty much just stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Except Except for some gore and things like that. It just falls apart and it's so boring and it's so tedious at that point. And the movie's like a cool like 86 minutes and you feel all of it when you're in that part, like when you're in that part. But the stuff on the plane is really good. There's a lot of tension building. And I mean, it might be because of my fear of flying, but like they have this giant guy get this zombie infection thing and he's just huge. He's one of those guys that like needs the extendo lap belt and then possibly a second one. And he's like super tall, big, burly dude. And when he hulks out on the zombie juice, man. It is terrifying to watch him charge the plane because he actually, if he moves too quick, he actually throws it off its access a little <laughs> bit. He's like this big dude. It's pretty cool. But yeah, that was the the second one that I watched. I won't go through them all. The most notable thing that I've watched recently that was a really enjoyable rewatch was the made-for-TV movie Gargoyles with the... Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Bernie Casey was the main gargoyle in that because he was the tall enough. He was yeah. like tall enough to do the makeup and be foreboding and everything. A lot of great makeup in that. The movie itself, I think that's like what seventy six minutes max. Yeah, um, the movie itself has some really golden, wonderful moments. Uh, I think Scott Glenn's in that as like the main bike riding baddie too. 
uh, it's been so long since I've seen it, but I want to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's an enjoyable, fun little ride of a film. You could probably find it on YouTube if you really were looking for it out there. Mm-hmm. Or you guys in your Rare Lust love, you probably find it there, too. It, it might be on there. Rare Lust has a lot of shit. Yeah. But uh, that was a fun watch. That is probably the earliest memory I have of watching a movie that I just came across as a kid on like TBS in the middle of the day that left me terrified in the middle of the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Like, I, I didn't see it that young, but man, those gargoyles look fucking good and they look fucking creepy for a TV movie. Gargoyles, 1972. Yep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, and the yeah, but, second film, if you just look for gargoyles on on uh, Rare List, is Gargoyle Girls from 1998, which has significantly lower quality special effects, just based on the cover image I see. So. <laughs> It'd be amazing if someone in 1998 went. You know what they need? A porn parody of 1972's <laughs> Gargoyles TV movie. <laughs> <laughs> no that that would be that would be a few years later when uh you know the the actual ironic porn thing like yeah we're gonna do we're gonna sell like we're gonna shoot it as a porn we're gonna call it that's not gargoyles and then we're also gonna sell a version where we cut out all the sex scenes and just sell it as you know a parody to whatever Skinamax version of this bullshit that exists. Or, or if it's, you know, the much more, like, just straight-laced hardcore parody, it'd be more like Gargle Goyles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't do those really clever titles anymore. They just totally have given up. It's like, why even bother, guys? Just say... And some of them you've seen where it's Simpsons, a porn parody. <laughs> Or something yeah. like that is what they call it. It's like, are you serious? How lazy? No, you- there's one guy who's like made all those. It just became like a genre at a certain point. There's like one guy who just made a who made his career in doing those movies, and that's that's it. You know. Yeah. Uh, is he responsible for the not a blah 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 title? Yeah. No. Or- though, that's yeah. it. That's that's the thing. Yeah. What you about? Know, is it the it. same guy who's also doing like Simpsons colon a porn parody? <laughs> It may be, I don't, I, I haven't followed the direct-to-DVD porn market, like, you know, the mainstream porn stuff in a while, but, uh, you know, I think that's probably a, like, the Transmorphers to the Transformers series, you know. The Asylum version of big yeah, movies. The Asylum yeah. version, yeah, so. I love the idea that there's someone out there making porn parodies, essentially doing it the Asylum way, just seeing mm-hmm. what's hot, and then doing it, like, right before it hits theaters. The Asylum yeah. of Porn is the perfect way to sell your company if you're doing AVN. <laughs> you, got, you, got, you have to have an angle. I mean, the porn industry is, I mean, as, as much money as it makes, it still is struggling considering how just easy access porn is to everybody these days. So, I mean, you, you got to have an angle. That's, that's all there is to it. Once people realized they only needed a few minute clip that they could get off of like a porn or a Pornhub, that's oh. all they needed and they could finish up and uh, close out their browsing history and call it a day and clear it all. Yeah, nobody will see that smurf, smurf porn I just uh, jacked off to. <laughs> Even though you admitted it on air. You're a braver man than I am, but I know I the one you're I talking about. No, I it, it, can't, I it, can't, it can't be. None of the Smurfs have red hair. Therefore, you know. <laughs> no, that, that's the thing. I, I, didn't admit to ja- I didn't admit to jacking off to Smurf porn myself. I was putting a hypothetical out there. I jack off to stepsister porn and uh, <laughs> other things like that. As, as long as they have red hair... Lee is there for it. That's yeah, the, you diminish me, sir. I, I'm not just obsessed with red. Well, I am obsessed with redheads, but I, I can I can dig brunettes as well, and the occasional blonde. Come on, now, don't. I'm not that limited of a person. 
No, no, you, you, your horizons are very broad. I'm not, I'm not exactly. really challenging you. No, it's fine. Every once in a we while, we certainly haven't had private conversations about these issues. You know, no, when, when no one's recording us. You know, but. <laughs> <laughs> so you think, Lee? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leave it to uh, me to drag that stuff out of you on your public forum, guys. Uh, well, I think I think every, everyone who listens to this podcast, the five people who listen to it, uh, know we're perverts. So, just... <laughs> I mean, we did a blue velvet episode, and that's all I'm going to say about you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so now we can move on to one of my favorite segments to do because this for me can flop or it can be great. Uh, it, it depends on on the guest, and uh, I'm not saying the quality of the guest. I'm just saying sometimes I can't get them with this so we're now going to be doing movie god movie god and court slaps uh are you familiar with this game i just heard you put duncan through the ringer of making him choose through two of his favorite surrealist directors so yeah i know exactly what you're talking about Right on. So, Movie God, I give you two things from movie industry, basically. Uh, movies, actors, directors, soundtrack, composers, etc., etc. And you have to choose one. And the one that uh, you choose is the one that makes it through. The other one dies. He's gone. Totally gone. He or she never existed. They're erased from the timeline. Uh, so you have to take into consideration all the work they've done, all the sort of work that's branched out from the work they've done, and basically kill one of your darlings here. Either you're going to be like Duncan, and you're going to be really phased by this, and you're going to be pissed off, and you're going to have to make a bad decision, or you're going to be Gary Hill, who just fucking, eh, I picked this guy, and then just basically fucked me off and said, I, I pick him. <laughs> 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 so... Court Sops, you are the movie god, and you have to kill one of these two prolific exploitation directors. And they're not so similar in the material they've done, but I'd say in, in, a, in a way they're on the same level. You have to kill either Jack Hill or Paul Nashi. Oh, dude, yeah, you are cruel. You are so cruel. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Now I can see where this would be a decision that Gary Hill would just go with and, you know, whatever, whenever, whatever thing that you brought for him, because he can just make the decision and be done with it. I think on that, mm-hmm. I can see why Duncan was so I, tortured with, uh, I, with his would, choices, but I would like to emphasize that we stole this podcast or I stole this game from another podcast. And the point is to like make people suffer and to make people really talk through their decision and really consider out loud all the terrible things that happen based on their choice. So, mm-hmm. well, okay. If I were to like, and I'm not doing this in any particular order, but like, if I were to make it to where Paul Nashi never existed, I would have never been able to make friends with Rod and Troy from doing the Nashi cast. Cause I discovered through them a lot of the Nashi stuff. And I had seen Nashi things before. You're also going to take away a good portion of clips from Rob Zombie when he steals music and other things that are out of <laughs> Paul Nashy movies. But that might actually be a bonus. Like if he doesn't get to use that stuff, that might actually be an improvement. <laughs> might actually have to be creative. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that we'll just put that on the, the plus side of it. Paul Nashi was a huge influence on a lot of European horror and he left his mark in horror in general. So, I mean, he's got quite the wide footprint there with horror in general. And my biggest love is always going to be horror. So that's kind of another thing that makes that difficult. Now, if you flip the script and we start talking about you sadistic fucks um, <laughs> <laughs> about why I would have to not choose Jack Hill versus why I should choose Jack Hill. I mean, the exploitation that that man created, the films that that man created, the wide spectrum of stuff that he did from the women in prison movies under Corman that he, he pulled off spider baby, which is one of the weirdest little known cult films ever made. <laughs> not to mention my own personal favorite switchblade sisters. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest influences, so Quentin Tarantino says, on Quentin Tarantino is Jack Hill films. So now I have a plus in the column where if I get rid of Jack Hill, maybe Quentin Tarantino never becomes a thing and I don't have to worry about movie DJs fucking up my exploitation I love. Uh oh. <laughs> I think you and Daniel are gonna have an argument later. <laughs> no, don't worry. I, I would never I would never uh disagree with a guest. <laughs> no, it's it's okay if you like Tarantino. I just don't. And I don't have a problem with his films. I have a problem with the man himself. A lot of his I, films know, that he's made yeah, are great. I actually completely understand that perspective. So he's a total dickhead who makes brilliant films. Yeah, he's definitely more hit than miss for me. But for the exercise here, and so I can throw a little sadistic stuff back at the guy who brought this to this podcast, I'm going to have to choose Jack Hill for the sole purpose of that may have eliminated Quentin Tarantino from the timeline. And I can live without Switchblade Sisters. There's no way in hell. I can live without most of the Paul Nashy werewolf films now that they've been a part of my life, nor the expansive footprint he had in horror in general. I mean, he's influenced so many people that I feel like it's less of a, you know, stepping off the on a butterfly off the path kind of sound mm-hmm. of thunder effect after that's all over with to get rid of him than with Jack Hill. Because Jack Hill's influence, I think, is I feel is a little bit more limited, but there's a specific target that I'm trying to get. It's like if you go back in time far enough and you can keep Hitler's parents from having sex <laughs> and making Hitler, it's kind of that thing. And I know I just equated Quentin yeah, Tarantino to Hitler, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to do that to you, Daniel. No, I'm not. Uh, no, it's fine. That's fine. Don't worry. We're, we're good. It's going to be it's going to be in the show notes. Court Sops says Quentin Tarantino is movie Hitler. That's <laughs> yeah. No, he is a movie DJ, though. So if you like DJs, then he could definitely be your thing because he mixes and matches stuff together and kind of makes this hodgepodge of like influential references and all of that kind of stuff. I I would really like to see him direct stuff that other people write for him. I would like to see that. I, you know, like where his ideas can kind of be contained in a script that somebody else wrote and then he kind of goes over top of it, which is weird because he's more known for probably his writing than than anything like a lot of people really dig the way that his his style of writing and his dialogue and all of that i would say even more so than his visual flair which is pretty influential too on a side note jackie brown is my favorite quentin tarantino film and the reason for that is it is so obviously him doing jack hill we brought it all back circle there (laughs) yeah yeah nice the the irony being of course being on this podcast is that had tarantino not existed i may not have become a serious film buff and may not have ever shown up <laughs> like this podcast may not is you may have killed this podcast by killing you know <laughs> in your game of movie god like and then oh. some, 
Well, if I'm a, truly if I'm truly a movie god, I would make it that they would both actually get more recognition and raise them up for they have been favored in the eyes of the good court, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would eliminate somebody else altogether. But that's not my choice. So you're not really movie god in this case. You're movie Sophie's choice. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's that's an excellent answer. Paul Nashi, if you got rid of Paul Nashi, basically you might hamstring Spanish horror. We might just not have any notable Spanish horror. You would completely eliminate all of Spanish horror because his film, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, it was released over here, but I think it's Mark of the Wolfman as his very first film. It's the mm. very first like official very first horror film ever made in Spain. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not necessarily something that I'm going to kind of like argue about, but I'm pretty positive that there was no horror industry before that film. And yeah. he lit a fire in people and they found the love that he had in horror from that film. And so, I mean, we would not be talking also again tonight without Paul Nashi because these films that we're talking about tonight would not exist either. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great answers, Gordon. I also didn't want to lose pieces. Without Paul Nashi, there would be no one Con- <laughs> Car Simone. <laughs> oh Jesus! Uh, and that would just be a blow to Duncan as well. He that would be like a double blow to him. Yeah, somewhere out there in Scotland, whenever he's actually listening to this episode, he feels I made the right choice because I saved pieces, even yeah. though he's sad that I may have tried to eliminate Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> There's never a total winner in movie God. You're always going to hurt somewhere. Like it's always going to sting you a little bit, unless you're Gary Hill, who just going to be like, "Fuck it." <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Gary. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play some podcast promos, including the promo for this gentleman's fine podcast, and then we're going to play some uh, music, and then we'll be back with Tombs of the Blind Dead. You ungodly warlock. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17 year olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at twelve years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at twelve? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. That you come to the right place. My name is Gary, and I'm your guide to Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode, we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better, and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 hey! You shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet. All right, calm down, calm down. Every show, I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. 
That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. You're slapped. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. And three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sun Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. You ungodly warlock. Okay, Tombs of the Blind Dead from 1972. Blind terror strikes fear into the hearts of innocent people. The morgue receives the victims of the blind dead. There's no escape from the blind dead. They are the Templars, devil worshippers, a death cult that has risen from their thousand-year-old tombs to begin a horrible reign of terror. Please, wait! Pop, look over there! beautiful young girl is trapped by the evil forces. No one is safe from their curse. They're coming!
human sound in the ancient cemetery brings the evil creatures from their tombs. The Templars perform their sadistic rites. A virgin is sacrificed in a blood ritual. fiery death for those who can't escape the blind death. Coming soon from your cemetery. Directed by Armando de Osario. Written by Jesus Navarro Carrion and Armando de Osario. Starring Lone Fleming as Betty Turner. Caesar Burner as Roger Whalen. Uh, Maria Elena Arpon as Virginia White, Jose Thelman as Professor Pedro Kendall, uh, Rufono Inglés as Inspector Oliveira, uh, I fucked that one up, uh, <laughs> and Monica Lemeria as Nina. And yeah, we're going to go right over to our guest first. So, uh, Court. Oh, no, do, wait. Do you I, have a synopsis for my movie that we can I make fun of? I, yeah. I, I do have one. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, I feel I feel like we need to make fun of someone's you know hard work that they did for free on IMDb today. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, though. Is there a both good one? Of, did you find a good one? Yeah, both of our synopsises are from the same person, and he is in my neck of the woods. I think because his email address he provides is says Acadia dot so I assume that's Acadia University uh, here in Nova Scotia. So this guy might be really smart. He might be really good. Um, <laughs> So he says, in the 13th century, there existed a legion of evil knights known as the Templars who quested for eternal life by drinking human blood and committing sacrifices. Executed for their unholy deeds, the Templars' bodies were left out for the crows to peck out their eyes. Now in modern-day Portugal, uh, a group of people stumble on the Templars' abandoned monastery, reviving their rotted corpses to terrorize the land, from Jeremy Lunt. And I think that is a good... I you know, that's back- a that's a that's a backstory. That's not a synopsis, but you know. Like... <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeremy. Uh, no, it's Daniel's... a perfectly it's a perfectly fine backstory. It it tells you nothing about like what's actually in the film, but you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's a good like this is a better back of the VHS synopsis than you usually sure sure yeah shit right. My my synopsis is there was this one time there was a hot girl who took off her clothes except she was covered in flames from the camera the whole time. And also <laughs> and then also some creepy dudes who are really, really old reached in to, to try to grab her and that was that was it. Basically George H. W. Bush was trying to kind of get her to get at her. That was the <laughs> <laughs> did you guys watch the English language version of it, the eighty-two minute, or did you watch the hundred or hundred and one like hour and forty minute like international version? Uh, for both these films, I watched the Spanish version, but I have seen the English versions as well. And yeah, there, there's a marked difference to to, to those uh, films. But uh, yeah, so, so yeah, for this one, I watched the uh, Spanish uh, the Spanish version subtitled in English on YouTube. Which was an hour and forty-one minutes. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So that's probably the same Blue Underground DVD print mm. that that I have. It um, did not look great on YouTube. I will say that. Um, oh, it could have been from the Anchor Bay that they did the really weird version of that. Where oh yeah, if it's it's the if it's the Anchor Bay, then 
it's probably cut to pieces because yeah. The, yeah, their versions were not as good as the blue underground ones. They kind of took the, basically the English language version of the first movie on that anchor Bay DVD and then forced pushed the uh, Italian or the, yeah, the Spanish language track that they had mm-hmm. when they had those cuts that were made, but they left the, the way that it was cut in the English language version was the same. They just shoved in some extra scenes. So it ended up still being the same runtime, but they were still kind of missing some things and it's out of order because the English language version starts with a sacrifice that's not even in the Spanish one unless it's a flashback later right. on in the film, if I remember correctly. I watched the English language version of it tonight because I was kind of thinking that you guys would have the Spanish language section covered for that. <laughs> I was just kind of assuming that that's what you guys would get your hands on. And that's yeah. the better the better cut of the film, but if you want to watch it like a chopped down version of it that feels more like a grindhousey exploitation flick, then the English language version of it that's like I think 82 minutes for this film is mm. is the route to kind of go. It's a quick in and out watch, and it, it, it contains all the meanness and the, the gore and stuff that's in the Spanish version, but it has less character development and it doesn't even bother to let you know what's going on. Although I think it's missing a sex scene too. There's like a sex yeah. scene with the the drug runner guy mm-hmm. and his girl that that's cut out of it. So there's that too. Yeah. So we'll go to you first here, court. What, what's your general thoughts on this film? This would be probably my second favorite of the whole entire series. But then again, you catch me on the right kind of day. Then I'm going to flip uh night of the seagulls and this one around because mm-hmm. <laughs> night of the seagulls would be my third favorite. And so they kind of, they kind of fight back and forth depending upon which version or which time I watched it. And watching it now, this kind of still puts it in the second overall of all of them. The biggest issues that I kind of have with the film, and I really noticed it watching it this time around, is some of the Templars that should be the background Templars that don't have as good of skulls or are just wearing oven mitts with silver duct tape over top of them. I don't know if you guys saw that in a couple (laughs) of shots (laughs) Or, or anything like that. Like the guys that are supposed to be in the background that you shouldn't be able to see as well. They're up front and like charging to get into the camera to get on screen time. I mean, Romero had that problem too with his zombies all the time, like in Dawn and Day of the Dead and stuff like that. So it's not a huge complaint, but like, don't leave that in your film. The really glaring one I noticed was at the very end when they're getting ready to attack the people on the train. It's like the very last moment, the very last attack right before the train starts to pull off in panic. Uh, <laughs> There's like two or three of them and they all have the duct tape oven mitts and it's really bad and obvious (laughs) that they're duct tape oven mitts. But other than I would say probably the unwarranted and completely pointless sexual assault in the middle of the film, Mm -hmm. I think this is also probably some of the best cinematography in the series. And I think it may also be possibly the most believable kind of encapsulated story on how it works because their curse is ongoing. It never ends. There's not just like a a short-term revenge. It also fits with the, you happen upon their domain that's cursed. And there's a reason why none of this land is inhabited. And I really like that aspect of it a lot too. Yeah. Daniel, what do you think? Court's making me like this film more and more. I gotta say, uh, watch this. I, you know, my immediate response and I watched this, uh, again on YouTube, kind of, uh, you know, Spanish subtitles, or English subtitles on the Spanish language. Bits of this I enjoyed a lot. I did kind of have the, this kind of drags a bit problem, the hour and 41 minute runtime. And I don't even think that's necessarily a problem with the film as much as it's a problem with sort of the expectations that we have with uh, these kinds of films at this point. I, I mean, I think there's a lot 
of interesting stuff kind of buried in the subtext. Uh, but at the same time, for like long chunks of this, you're kind of just watching people who are not very good actors kind of doing stupid things, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and just kind, just kind of standing and waiting for, you know, some uh, decent special, admittedly a good special effect uh, to kind of poke its uh, bony hand through it, through a door or something like that. It was difficult for me to get really all that invested in the, in the kind of like narrative. One of the things that I run into when I'm uh, thinking about these kinds of horror films that I'm, I'm often interested in the, uh, kind of what's the real thing that we're kind of like sublimating fear out of in this film? You know, what's the kind of real anxiety and uh, how does the film kind of engage with that? And uh, here I had, uh, I mean, you know, are, are people really like scared of the Knights Templar? And, and, you know, what do the Knights Templar kind of represent? I mean, they represent kind of like banking interests that kind of got like demonized as like some Illuminati. And that doesn't really have a connection to sort of the mythology in the film necessarily. I mean, it would make, I mean, I guess they're sort of like vaguely connected to the crusades. I mean, they were, they were kind yeah. of after the first crusade. So, I mean, you kind of connected that way. I don't know. Like I, I'd have to think about it a little bit more. I know there is some kind of scholarship that's kind of come out of the talking about this film. And I would be interested <laughs> in kind of engaging with that, um, at least in terms of kind of looking at like kind of what, you know, how people are interpreting this. I guess court's laughing at me now. Um, I didn't have the time to do the, to do the real deep dive that I would have liked to have done for this. Overall, I liked the film. I think again, there's some, uh, we can, I guess we can talk about the details of, you know, what's really good is kind of the gore, some of the, some of the character work, some of that stuff. There's a great lesbian scene that is, is a flashback, which uh, was, was uh, very enjoyable. But I, I did, I did feel the runtime a little bit more than I thought I was going to on this, and uh, that was a little bit disappointing for me. Yeah, for me, I, I would agree it does run a little bit long, but at the same time, I think this does a really good job of sort of setting down sort of the the sort of base elements of this whole series. Like it introduces the Templars very well; it's very atmospheric in that regard, is sort of introducing them. Uh, Courts right, some of the effects are a little dodgy. Um, I'll argue when we get to the second film that. It gets even worse. Here, they don't have a lot to do, so you don't see the Templars all the time on screen. Like they're they're much more put to the background. They're used very sparingly. It's much more about the people and their silly love triangles and all that bullshit in this film. Oh, I liked the silly bullshit love triangle stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, certainly better than the sort of vague you know, thing they were going at, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I liked, I liked the character dynamics there. I, I will defend it to the degree. I mean, you know, and, and again, I, I think the film overall is, I, I like the film, but I did like the, you know, they have this kind of like immediate tension that happens, which mm-hmm. justifies her being like, well, why would she go off into this place where, you know, all the locals are like, no, no one ever goes here. You should never go here. And, you know, even the trains are like the, the two people on the train are, you know, very overt about like no 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 we don't ever stop it doesn't matter on, never on, stop, you know? not that stopping would be a big change from the speed of the train by the way because it's like <laughs> the slowest fucking train ever <laughs> it's a it's a choo choo so let's just leave it at that but uh, no but I, I did I you know I, I kind of like seeing her like she kind of she kind of goes off and is like well fuck these two like whatever she goes off into her own little uh, you know I'm just gonna camp out here in this in this uh, mausoleum. And got my camping gear. I've got my I've got my little like proto boombox thing. I've got a book. And what else do I need? And I'm like, you. I am with you. Please, y'all. You know, I have, you know, you got fucked over by your friend. Have a have a nice uh, little, uh, you know, camp out by yourself. You did not deserve to die for that. That's you know, yeah. like. Also, thank you for the need to uh, 
change into your pajamas before you. She, she changes clothes like four times in eight minutes. It's kind of <laughs> remarkable. But, you know. She's got skills, man. She has to have a costume change for like every quarter of a scene. <laughs> <laughs> she she gets undressed, and we see she gets undressed to get into her pajamas. She gets into the sleeping bag, and then later, when oh, I heard something. Let me change again. Also, even when she's dressed, she's wearing you know like cut off shorts that. Or leave very little to the imagination. And uh, I, when she was on the screen, I was not bored. I will, I will just leave it at that. Yeah. Oh yeah, she's absolutely gorgeous. You can't take her eyes off of her, which is why they film her in that ruin type thing. And if you're into Euro horror, I love that they use all of these like abandoned, half deformed, like just falling apart, crumbling castles or even just buildings. This looked like an old like warehouse building that just kind of fell apart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They used it really well. They found ways of making it actually feel like it might have been some type of old Templar structure, you know, mm-hmm. although it looks more like it would be their barn than their actual temple for their Templar work. Yeah, yeah. As the series progresses, it's like changes from film to film, but this whole town, uh, Bizarro or, or whatever the fuck it's called, it's it's got basically the, the Templar's church stuck into it, and then the, t- the sort of medieval town surrounds it. And, you know, it's one of those medieval towns where there's no spaces between houses or anything. It's all walled in, kind of like stucco kind of built kind of buildings or whatever. And, yeah, it sells that really well. Like, the the, the locations and everything, and you're right, Court, the cinematography sells the landscape, sells the idea of this place, makes you believe it exists. And it looks really good. And and then, of course, you have our, our uh, girl here who goes off alone. She becomes a victim of the blind dead. And that sets off the entire sort of plot of the film, really. Like, uh, her... He says, hey, we're we're not really boyfriend and girlfriend. We're just, you know, friends or whatever. <laughs> he, I think he uses that later for for uh, the, the girl he's, like, trying to mack on in the train, too. Men are absolute shitheads in both of these films. They're, oh, yeah. they're, you know, the yeah. film has been accused, and so has D'Osorio, of being misogynistic. The whole Blind Dead series definitely has some things about that, but... I think he was just a pessimist when it came to humanity because there's not really good people in any of his films. You have like yeah. a handful, like maybe in Lorelai's grasp, he, uh, he had a couple characters that were decent people. And when I see a couple, I mean two, and they're, they're the only ones that survived for a reason. <laughs> but there's no good people. Even the quote unquote heroes in this film are just doing slightly less evil than everybody else. I mean, yeah. like even the main lady that we follow all the way through, who, you know, is the older kind of like cougar hunter betty or whatever her name I, is i like to think of her as the sophia loren look like uh yeah. yeah yeah like a kmart sophia loren i totally yeah. get that <laughs> <laughs> i thought this i thought this film was italian for for longer than i'm comfortable admitting just because <laughs> she looked like vaguely like sophia loren and it opens with women in bikinis taking showers i thought oh clearly it's italian Oh, it's definitely European in a really good way, though. Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah. no, not not in a negative way at all. Once, oh, it's Spanish Portuguese. Fuck that shit. You know. That was <laughs> there was not a time too long ago. There was not a time where I may have actually been saying things like that because I was all about Italian horror and didn't give a shit about anything else overseas. And I'm glad that I broadened my horizons on that because Euro horror is just a deep, ever widening well of 
just joy that I keep finding. Yeah, it's, it's a real sort of widening gyre of excellence <laughs> wherever you go. <laughs> I like that this film takes the time to give you like different characters though. Like it, it gives you, you know, the, the father of the, uh, the smuggler that they eventually get involved with, you know, basically professor exposition here who <laughs> tell, tells you everything you need to know, about the Templars. And then you have the creepy mortician character who, God. what I, the I, fuck was that guy? Like I had no clue what was going on during that. Except like, Oh, he's creepy. And you know, it, it felt like, like, Oh, let me show you the body of your friend. Ha ha. I showed you a different body. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it sort of felt like Jess Franco wasn't available to do a bit part, and they just got this other guy. I, I, got, I got very, like, you know, I've seen a Jess Franco film or two vibe from, like, long sequences of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's amazing. The, the whole scene, like, here's something that's never picked up in the, in the in the next few films, where the victims of the blind dead end up becoming these sort of mindless zombies themselves. <laughs> And you have this amazing sequence in this mannequin shop that is straight up giallo-esque, kind of. Like, the visuals are great. And, like, I mean, that's one of the sequences that just looks great. Although I will say, you know, I usually don't try to make predictions when I'm watching these films. But the second early on when Betty's like, oh, I uh, own a mannequin shop. It's right near the it's right near the morgue. I'm like, oh, we're going to get to see that. And there's going to be a horror scene right there. Like, you know, that's... Boom! Third act. I know where I know where we're going here. Yeah. Well, just... if they set it up that obviously and they don't go there, how disappointed would everybody who watches <laughs> this movie be? Where it's like that's just like this dangled red herring that does nothing. Yeah. The biggest the biggest surprise for me is that the super cute assistant actually survives. I just expected her to die. Like I expected oh, another victim. There you go. But no, she actually you know she actually gives you the sort of visual cue that hey, fire is what destroys these fucking things. And then, of course, like you were saying, Daniel, you get you get these you know superimposed flames on uh, our our poor uh, first victim in the film, uh, and she just sort of uh, they could have chose better shots for that sequence. I think you, you didn't need to necessarily keep showing her with the obvious fake flames on her. You just need like maybe one shot of that really quick. And then you could have switched off to just showing the mannequins melt, and that would have given you like the the sort of visual cue that hey, that's what hap- that's what's happening to her right now, you know, kind of thing. I mean, really, the way you shoot that, I mean, if you if you don't really have the budget to do it right, and you're working in 1973, is you like cut to the mannequins melting, and you cut to her face like screaming or something, right. or like so, you know, and then you just sort of and you just kind of sell it through implication, like that's the you know. That's yeah. that's 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 me as filmmaker. They could have just used a lens with a shallow depth of field and a flame bar and put it like yeah. closer to the yeah. camera than the actress. And they did that in like several Vincent Price movies where they're burning people at the stake. Like which which Finder General alone had really good flame bar effects. Yeah. And that yeah. was not too much before or after this. I mean, it's possible to do that. They could have used that. The, the cuts you guys are talking about with cutting away to the mannequins. I love that as well. My only complaint about this is the wider, more open shot shows the full of her body and that sort of like sexy Bride of Frankenstein wrap up they did for her bikini mm-hmm. of gauze. And after you see a mortician that's that weird and joking around and all Jess Franco, I totally believe that he would wrap up corpses like that for his own weird fetishy photo- <laughs> photography. <laughs> yeah, and that's why she's dressed like that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. 
Yeah, maybe maybe, they, that, maybe that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to sell the costume by showing how creepy the the mortician was. Uh, yeah, no, I'm headcanoning this. I, I headcanon accepted court. I agree. <laughs> and, am I, I am I not mistaken? in like when they did the autopsy on her, like they took they took her skull off and checked her brain, but they didn't open the rib rib cage. If if I remember correctly, like she doesn't have the scars for like spread the ribs and check out the organs there. They just had the Frankenstein sort of scars around the head and all that shit. Yeah. And if she still has a heart, I would say that would probably be more important to vampires than a brain. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you wouldn't have the twilight series of vampires actually needed brains. <laughs> oh, wow. Way to, way to pick a really tough target there. <laughs> I know I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking of vampires off the top of my head. I've been drinking on air, so I'm going to go for the low hanging fruit. Fair enough. That's what we do every episode. <laughs> so how about Pedro and his uh, in, uh, sweaty armpits, his porn mustache, his loose girlfriend, his nasty rapist piece of shit tendencies? He he will not be the last rapey shithead with a mustache we, we see in this episode. Uh, mm-hmm. Not to spoil the, the second film. Yeah, no, that was, uh, so as as I sometimes do on this show, I watched this in two parts. I kind of got to the, I need to go to bed and get to work tomorrow kind of thing around the hour and five minute mark and uh, then turn it back on. And around the hour 15 mark is when like, oh, and now the rape happens. And uh, this is deeply uncomfortable and disgusting. And uh, yeah, you deserve to die. And then he dies. It didn't really make it better, but at least he died. <laughs> the worst part is that she says she doesn't like sex with men specifically to him because of a bad experience she had as a child, which is implying that a man raped her and therefore she cannot stomach nor handle the thought of ever touching a man again. And he proceeds to slap her around, rip her clothes off, rape her and like try and convince her that she's going to love it. And then he, just, he, it's he, so disgusting, man. He, he gives her the full Kavanaugh treatment, really. That's the, oh, uh, you know. Christ, it's, it's just it's, awful. It's like 1970s gay conversion therapy is basically what it is. It's just, we'll get you back from that lesbo stuff you were thinking it's, of. It's, it's the Banky Edwards strategy. She just needs some deep dicking. That's the, you know. That's, that's right, yeah. Oh, it's so gross, and it's so disgusting. And I can see why anyone would want to accuse Osorio of being misogynistic. Because mm-hmm. you can have all the titillation you need in a film like this with just consensual sex. You know, you had she a lot been, of it earlier. I've been into it, right? Like, there's no read. The rape just happens, and then uh, yeah, he dies. Like, you could have very easily been like, oh, yeah, why don't we just bone right here? She could have been totally into him. They could have had a nice consensual kinky sex bit with maybe some force, but she was into it. And then he dies, and everything would have been fine. Nothing changes except apparently yeah, rape is just a thing that, like, you know... Although I, I did admire her performance in this. I was like, in the script, she's kind of forced to like just sort of accept it and then move on. Yeah, it's 1973. I'll bet a lot of women basically did that. Yeah, he raped me, but what else am I going to do except just kind of move on with my life? And that's a really disappointing like bit of unintentional reality that just kind of like intrudes into the film for five minutes there. But. It's kind of, it's kind of weird too. Uh, Pedro's girlfriend, her name's not Chiquita, but that's what he calls her all the time. Chiquita. Yeah. She throws herself at. She's the, like begging. Uh, she's like begging for sex from him, which again, yeah. like there is an unintentional like reality here where, you know, these men are not, it's not like he's raping because he can't get pussy. Otherwise 
he's raping her because because she's unavailable he rapes her yeah. like that and it's about i have the power to do this and fuck you and it's just uh it's just like if i thought they did it intentionally i would admire it but they didn't and so it's really really creepy and disgusting and you know it's one of the most uncomfortable things I've seen in a while. We've gone a while without having a rape in a movie, and then this is how we come back to rape in a film, you know? Yeah. It's a pretty rough scene, and it's it really takes you out of the film, and it pretty much drops the film into a hole that you don't want to watch the rest of it after that section. Like, I can see where splitting it up and watching it after that and coming back once you've gone past that point, but watching it as the start when you know you have to finish it, not very comfortable at all. Now, the English language version of that, that stuff is also severely cut down to the right. point where it's really diminished, which is another reason why I prefer to watch the English language track. I may be losing some of the really great conversations and the, the backstory of some of these folks as well, as well as a consensual sex scene that happens between Pedro and his girlfriend before we move on to go to the cemetery to go looking for the young lady who disappeared. But there's no reason for it other than they're trying to sell it as titillation, which makes it even that much more disgusting. Yeah. And it, it doesn't help that the the film doesn't pick you up any afterwards, too, because it gets super fucking dark after this. You, you kill off like half the cast and the main girl escapes to the train. And then you get the slaughter on the train, including these blind dead, like basically slowly leeching off a young girl <laughs> who's just like, uh, like whining and crying. Basically, it's implied that everybody on the train is slaughtered. And then everybody who cut, walks into the train when it stops at the, at the station gets slaughtered. And our, our main uh, heroine is uh, she's got gray hair now because she's so traumatized and she's just gone crazy. And it, it sort of stops in almost a um, homage to Night of the Living Dead with like the still photograph kind of idea at the end there. Now, I dig the ending. Once we get past the point where everybody dies in the monastery and we're past the points of the rapes, whenever the blind dead saddle up and start chasing these folks across the plains to the train, that's when the film really picks up for me. And I know yeah. it's super dark and I know it's super twisted, but that sequence, I mean, oven mitts wrapped in duct tape, being prominently featured on camera aside, the sequence of them feeding, of attacking and killing and hunting by the, the sound are just amazing. And just before that happens, whenever our main character, Betty, and I'm calling her our main character because she survives the whole way through it, so I got nobody else to latch she, on she's to. She's very obviously our main character, yes. Yeah. The sequence where she's trying to get away from them after pretty much everybody else is dead but her, and she's pausing for a moment and they hear her heartbeat, that just makes you like freak out because you're like, oh my God, if I'm scared of them, they can hear me too. That makes it just that much worse. And I really dig that particular part of the film. And then it just leads you like that part kind of brings you back. And then it leads you to the chase and then the train scenes that just I mean, go I, overboard. I, I wish, I mean, I love that last like 15 minutes or so. I wish they'd done more with it. Like I, if, if the whole film were sort of that concept, I, I would dig it. You know, and I would it would it would be a uh, like I don't know. I I feel like it wastes a lot of time, kind of getting to that like to the to the meat of that. And once once you get there, it's great. You, you know, you're telling the story about like oh, they're the blind dead. They they hunt you by listening, and they can't see you. And yet we really very rarely get a sense of that in in motion and in, in action. You know, in this film, how great would it have actually been if 
the very first girl when she's staying there for the night basically makes it through most of the night without having any of the Templar stuff show up. But then the next day, like the first train in the morning comes through and she gets caught up by them. They start biting on her, but she survives. She rides one of the horses out like she did before, but she actually makes it to the train. She gets the train to stop. The blind dead are following her. And then the rest of the movie is them feasting on the train. And then every freaking stop, they just kind of split off and go. And then we have that thing established where their victims come back to life. So like the victims on the train get up and they're like Templar surrogates and they just keep spreading it out. And it's like this all along the line of the train. And you could just do movies forever of these people just rolling into town. So what you're saying is all it does is kill the people it kills get up and kill. The people they kill get up and kill. I don't know. I think there might might be a movie in that. I see a theme. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're wrapping up here. I uh, I do want to mention that the actual uh, torture death scene, the origin of the uh, the the blind dead, really effectively done. The the ritualistic murder. That's the. I think that's the first time you actually get real nudity in the film, which is kind of an interesting choice. The effects there. You know, this is the uh, you know lowlized grasp. We had the uh, the really nice gore effects of like uh, claws digging into breast tissue. Here you get a sword digging into breast tissue all the yada 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 misogynistic uh, whatever but um it worked it worked in context um and i liked it i thought it was an effective sequence yeah totally agree totally agree so there's no uh box office information for this uh at all apparently it did really well because they spawned three more films so (laughs) at least you know that much so yeah the, the spanish version as we as we mentioned definitely differed quite a bit uh several several minutes uh shorter and it changed some scenes around and got rid of a lot of the sex and gore. Now, here's the interesting thing. For the American distribution of this film, they severely re-edited the film and tried to sell it in the drive-ins as a Planet of the Apes film. They tried to name this film Revenge from Planet Ape, and the conceit (laughs) was that these were, this was like the far future and these were the dead bodies of the apes from Planet of the Apes going around and killing uh, the re- the remains of uh, human civilization. Now, that would have included them filming new scenes for that to sort of try to make that work, but they didn't have the money to do it. So they just called it Revenge from Planet Ape, slapped it on the fucking film. And if you actually look at Blue Underground DVD, they have the original title sequence for this. But it's just the same fucking film. <laughs> there's no there's no reference to planet of anything or ape anything if you go into it it's the same fucking film but they did that to try to trick people into coming to the drive-in hey you remember that planet of the apes film with cornelius and caesar and all that bullshit this is one of those films this just goes back to that like uh you know what would it have been to kind of watch these in drive-ins in 1973 kind of kind of moment you know yeah. like oh yeah uh, Revenge of the Ape. Yeah, it's shown. Let's go see that. And then you get to see a little opening sequence, maybe some ape stuff. And then, like, oh, why is it 1973 all of a sudden? And oh, lesbians? Great. And then, like, what are these knights with swords doing? You know, are they, you know. Yeah, it's like they, they were basically banking on you were too busy, like, fucking in your car to watch the movie. Yeah. It's like, you know. Yeah. But, you know, there were there were studious people like you and me who probably would have been watching the film at that point, at that age, you know, like 17-year-olds going to the drive-in watching this going, where the fuck are the fucking apes? 
what the fuck? <laughs> and then like two years later, you get a girlfriend and you don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. I would have totally loved to actually seen blind dead apes doing like, you know, Planet of the Apes style vengeance. That actually would be really cool. I want that movie now. Revenge of Planet Ape. Yeah. And now, now I have now I have an image of you know like the first film at the Charlton Heston like burns the eyes out of some apes and ritualistic <laughs> murder, and then in the second film they come back from radioactive ash and go chasing after Charlton Heston through the desert, and uh, at the end of that film they end up uh, ritualistically mur- ritualistically murdering him uh, with their teeth. Like I'm, you know, and any, any film that ends with Charlton Heston dying horribly, given who Charlton Heston actually was in real life, uh, I'm kind of okay with. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, the Mega Man, good film. (laughs) I love the Christ pose at the end of Omega Man when he falls down dead. That just is like really driving the point home. Truly, I should have been in Ben-Hur too. Yeah, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be Jesus, goddammit. All right. And her two chariot boogaloo. <laughs> Back in the city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're going to take a very quick break, play a little bit of music, and we'll be back for Return of the Evil Dead. Oh, by the way, Daniel, I wasn't laughing at you. I just love the idea of a scholarship to study the Tombs of the Blind Dead films. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure there actually are people who have written theses on these films. Um I, I did do I did do the bit of googling and kind of like looking at websites and I'm like yeah people do have I mean there are people who have done uh, sort of like critical reads of this and uh, I think it's you know I love it I think it's great under socialism we're all going to get to just you know do things that make other people happy and uh, that that's the sort of thing that makes me happy seeing people get deeply invested in the blind dead films and the mythology and the symbolism that's the sort of thing that I think like anybody who wants to do that should get to do it. You know, yeah, I always actually my interpretation for the Templars and their vengeance and the things that they're doing, I always kind of felt that that was like Franco Spain (laughs) and the way that things used to be is what the, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Templars are coming back to try and bring the way that things used to be before Franco Spain. And it was just kind of because they had to hide everything. They couldn't even have monsters actually be part of Spain's history because it was if monsters were in spain that means that it's franco spain contains monsters and franco spain will have no monsters or no evil that's why it's in portugal yeah werewolf. i feel i feel like there's a you know one of the things if you're if you study the history of fascism which i'm not saying i have and am do a etc you know uh and you study the like nation states of europe so you know we think here in the U.S., I think that, you know, like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're all like a few hundred years old and you know, we have these institutions. It's like, no, 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 like, you know, Spain wasn't a nation state until like 1940, basically, you know, like it's, you know, Germany was only unified like 60 years before World War II or, you know, in, in 1869 or something like that. And um, I think there's something really that we're missing as as Americans in terms of kind of our North Americans, I should say, Lee. Uh, in terms of thinking about some of this and that like these, a lot of these kind of political messages are based on the idea that they don't have these kind of pre-existing institutions that you know are kind of feeding into uh, a sense of some kind of shared national unity, that these are essentially kind of like neighboring states that have entered into this sort of a uh, kind of low key. Yeah. Okay. We'll call ourselves Germany or Spain now, but like really 
I'm, I'm a member of this like smaller, you know, kind of autonomous unit. And, you know, it's, it's like colonialism happened within these States as, as well as, you know, kind of that like outside thing. And ultimately we're all ruled by ruling elites that don't give a fuck about us. And, um, all this just sublimates through our horror, you know, but I don't think that these films, I mean, I could think all that and not think that the film really has anything to say to that. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I I'd say the second film kind of does have a the little second, bit of that. Well, the second film does it definitely gets a lot more on point with that. And I'll, and I'll talk about that um, yeah. at least a little bit. Hopefully Although you're at least recording this. Cause this is fucking gold that he just came up with right there. See, this is why he lets you go, Daniel. That was fucking beautiful. <laughs> This is the kind of things I get to on the uh, like fourth beer of the evening is like you know. <laughs> this is going to be one of our. Uh, I think when I get into the edit of this, this is going to be one of our more sort of free form uh, conversations because I think there's a lot of bits I'm just not going to cut out. Like, I'll, I'll cut out saying I'm going to go to the window and get a beer. <laughs> I'll probably cut that out, but you know, otherwise. But yeah. Fair enough. All right. Next up, Return of the Evil Dead, also known as Return of the Blind Dead. Terror once again treks its legendary course, making your flesh creep with pleasure. Night, when the unliving rise again from their graves, you will tremble with the Return of the Evil Dead. Their hell-born revenge, for which there is no assurance of protection, nor will you escape the fear, the anxiety, which the return of the evil dead provokes. A new high in excitement. Return of the Evil Dead. The Return of the Evil Dead with Tony Kendall and Fernando Sancho. The terrifying thriller of the year. Do not attend this film alone. We suggest you bring at least one large partner to hold you tightly. The lifeless horsemen will make this theater into a living horror. Return of the Evil Dead. The Return of the Evil Dead. You sure you're in fit condition? And don't scream. Uh, don't mistake this for any of the uh, Bruce Campbell films. Uh, some people have, weirdly enough, from 1973, directed again by Armando D'Asorio and written by him solely this time out. And this is starring our friend Tony Kendall from The Laura Lee's Grasp as Jack Marlowe. <laughs> That's a pretty masculine name right there. It's like Jack Marlowe. Gonna swagger in and fuck a lot of bitches, basically. <laughs> I'm going to um, sound like John Wayne. I'm going to wear a fur coat, a fur-colored mm-hmm. coat the entire movie, despite the fact that I'm expected to do action sequences and hammer nails and broads, by the way. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm yeah. a hero. 
Uh, Fernando <laughs> Sancho is Mayor Duncan. Esperanza Roy is Vivian. Esperanza, Esperanza Roy. Is that is that a female name in Spanish? Esperanza. That's, that's interesting. Frank Barfia. It, it, it has an A ending, Lee. Therefore, it is feminine. That's that's okay. the only thing you need to know about speaking Spanish. Uh, Frank Barfia is. She was still alive. Well, she was born in thirty five. She is still alive. Yeah, uh, I was actually looking through a lot of these. A lot of these people are still alive. Um, wow, she did something on TV in Italy and uh, or in uh, Spain. In 2008, like 10 years ago. That's pretty oh, amazing. Nice. Anyway, Jose Canalajalis as Murdo, uh, who, who I like to call uh, basically 80s era Stephen King because he looks just like fucking Stephen King. Uh, Loretta Tovar. <laughs> He's Adam Sandler in Little Nicky, but like <laughs> the less good version. And I know everything, every word I just said there, I'm aware of. That's. Yeah. No, I was, I was, <laughs> I was gonna say like he reminds me of Stephen King from Creepshow, basically. Like it's mm. it's basically that performance in a, in a way. Uh, Loretta Tovar is uh, Monica. Uh, Ramon Lilio is Barrero. Lone Fleming returning here is Amelia. Uh, Maria Nura is uh, Amelia's daughter. Jose Thelman again returning uh, this time as Juan. Juan Casilla is the governor. Bitsabe Ruiz is the governor's maid. Uh, she's pretty sexy. She's actually in Lorley's grasp as well. She's the uh, first victim, the uh, bride to be or whatever that gets mm. killed. Marisol DeGaldo as Doncella, Louis Barbo as executed Templar, and Francisco Sanz as station manager. And who cares about the rest? Um, <laughs> there were two more names on Wikipedia there, and uh, yeah, there were I, Farmer One and Farmer Two. Yeah, and I think. I think uh, Lee just didn't want to pronounce the names Ramon Centenero and Cristino Almodovar. So, you know. Yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go to the synopsis here. And again, this is from uh, Jeremy Lunt from here in my region. So it's obviously an astute synopsis. 500 years after they were blinded and executed for committing human sacrifices, a band of Templar knights returns from the grave to terrorize a rural Portuguese village during its centennial celebration. Being blind, the Templars find their victims through sound, usually the screams of their victims. Taking refuge in a deserted cathedral, a small group of people must find a way to escape from the creatures. That does a bit better job in this first go, I'd, I'd say. Jeremy's improved a little bit here. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah that's, you know, a, that's a pretty excellent uh, synopsis, I would say. Yeah, like, you know, the first one I'd probably give Jeremy, but like, you know... C plus B minus kind of around that range here. I, I think he's on a full B plus here. Like he, he gets, he gets it. He's, he's going yeah. good job. Jeremy. But, but again, in, in the, in the, he misses the, like the first half of the film, which is kind of before the good stuff starts to happen. I'm sensing a pattern. Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, we'll throw over the court. What are your general thoughts on this film? Okay. I have pretty good history with this flick. I bought, the Anchor Bay VHS that had the little fold-open cover wow. of this that was titled Return of the Blind Dead. It wasn't called oh. Return of the Evil Dead on that particular box. I bought this used at Ides Bookstore in downtown Pittsburgh. I used to skip class in college all the time and just walk over to Ides and just shop. And yes. this thing caught my eye because it was it was called Return of the Blind Dead. And I was like, all right, I'll check that out. It has the key things I need, something living or something, something dead, you know, <laughs> like whether it's return, night, dawn, day, whatever, and the dead are living. So 
wait, no, they're blind. Okay, so let's see what this is about. I literally just bought it on a whim and I watched it probably three times in a row after I bought it and then made everyone I knew in college watch it too. Like there was no choice. If we were going to continue to be friends, you needed to watch this like little 80 minute (laughs) film at the time, at least once. I really enjoy it. I love the aspect of my nostalgia for the film more than probably anything else for that reason. But I really enjoy a lot of the cinematography in this in this film as well. I think the best stuff is in the catacombs probably. And then the shots that are back in the day of the Templars. I really like the intro, particularly where they're all being burnt and the guys screaming citizens burn their eyes, burn their eyes (laughs) so they can't find us. I really love that portion of it. And this one more than any of the other ones in the series really feels like kind of a fairy tale to me because they're like this, you know, this cursed land where, you know, you're not supposed to go and it's been lasting for however, like 500 years, they've been able to have this festival and celebrate that they murdered these Templars and burnt them at the stake, you know, for doing human sacrifices. And yet all it took was just one particular event that brought them back from the grave. And you feel like the little like hunchback guy that's like what you guys were kind of bagging on him a little bit for being a bit annoying, I think justifiably so. But the hunchback guy, you feel like he's the one that's been kind of working this to happen. Um, Like he did something to actually cause the curse to be able to be enacted because he's been beaten up and, you know, picked on his entire life. But at the same time, is it because the couple went to bang in their cemetery? Because nobody in the town would do that, I don't think. Yeah, it, uh, obviously you don't know what small towns are like. It's uh, you know, I lost my virginity in, in a in a in a freaking cemetery, sir. I know exactly what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Daniel, what be, before we get to your thoughts, I just I just want to mention that this film definitely, like we were saying, each one of these films is kind of like almost a reboot of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Uh, either you know, like reboot or maybe like even like a other artists interpretation like an anthology film almost of the same concept kind of thing like Osorio keeps working through new shit in every film so this totally rewrites pretty much the uh origins of the templars but uh what what are your thoughts on this daniel this definitely uh was a sort of an easier watch it feels like it's kind of more technically accomplished it it's a, a lot smoother and shorter i mean i don't I, I don't want to just say it's shorter because i think that you know even though i kind of was complaining about the length earlier i mean really usually when we're complaining at length length of a film you're complaining about like some technical merit that the film is kind of lacking that just sort of makes itself felt over long periods whereas i think in the first film it's just sort of like there's a lot of filler where it's uh, kind of giving us a lot of like, oh, we're just kind of hanging out in this space without really building anything or kind of giving any new information. Uh, here, like the the shorter runtime means that we're kind of always kind of moving from one thing to another. Although it still is repetitive, we get like five or six scenes of people. You know, oh no, obviously you're too drunk, and that's why I'm not going to do anything about this. Uh, it just kind of works up the chain of command, which might be a thing that works in a sort of better written film here. It just feels a little bit repetitive. It doesn't quite kind of 
lead to anything. It's not quite saying as much. But I also think the film is technically it, it flows more easily. It kind of gives us a better sense of like an idea that the film is trying to uh, present. It borrows much more heavily from Night of the Living Dead, which is always a good thing in this kind of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly once you get to the last half and it's yeah let's just remake now living dead great all right i'm down like yeah let's just let's just do that our lead here is uh probably more compelling our rapist is uh is less rapey although he still has a mustache so it's fine um you know we don't have uh we don't have quite uh as as much eye candy to look at here we have more eye candy but the heights are not as high as the eye candy in the first film and by this i mean the uh the beautiful women because i'm a sexist asshole and um well well are 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 we gonna be like sexist together and agree that the main female lead isn't exactly the most attractive woman on this cast I mean, I feel like she's fine. Like, I, yeah, I no, mean, she looks she's fine, not... but she. <sighs> well, I, I, love, <laughs> I love that Lone Fleming came back, but yeah, you know, she's only got you know a, a very tiny bit role. When I saw she was in the second one, I'm like, oh, it's going to be kind of a continuation where you know she kind of shows up as, if not like a co lead in this, she'll be like. Oh, we interviewed the woman who was the lone survivor of the last massacre or whatever, and it's like, no, she's just another character. It's like, all right, that's fine. So can um, I? Uh, do I have to wear the burden of being the lone asshole going? Tony Kendall's basically dating his older sister here. That's <laughs> what he's doing. Do I have to be the fucking asshole that takes that fucking that fucking hit? Like it just it just feels weird. I'm just gonna back away like Homer Simpson into okay. a bush and hide. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Continue, Daniel. Let's forget this even happened. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. No, I, I get it. No, I, I like this. I like this fine. I think probably I like the first film a little bit more. I think it's, well, I like the first film more in the sense of it's the first, and I feel like it's a little bit more interesting in terms of, I like the character work a little bit better. The second mm-hmm. one is clearly trying, is at least aiming at some sort of political read, and it's doing something that's, it's tighter, it's got a better sense of pace, it's got a better sense of, kind of leading into something, but there's no like sort of character relationship in the second film. That's as interesting as that sort of three way, you know, that, that kind of love triangle in the first film. And uh, so, so I feel like it's, it's kind of a, kind of a mixed bag. If you ask me which one I'd want to watch again right away, it's probably the second. Well, no, actually I feel like maybe going back to the first one that I've seen the second one, I might be able to kind of, you know, kind of get a little bit more out of it. Um, I think both films are flawed, but both films are, are pretty good, and I'd recommend both. But, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think the thing you know is, first off, is that this is much more action-heavy. This yeah. is like, here's what worked with the Templars in the first film. Let's do more of that shit. Uh, so you get a lot more Templar action on screen. You get a lot more, like, every Templar has a fucking sword now. And they're running around chopping the fuck out of people, and then banging the hilts on doors, which yeah. is which is really effective, guys. I, well, you know. well, no, I, I like that the they're not just mindless zombies. They have you know some aut- autonomy. You know, like they, they know what they're doing. Like there's a sequence here where they pin a young girl to a door to lure the people out to try to get them. Like they, they use her as bait, you know, like there's some intelligence going on here. Like the, it, it, it sort of goes to, yes, they're coming back from the grave for revenge. 
and they actually, you know, they, they have intellect. They actually know what they're doing, you know. They just happen to be, you know, stuck in these really slow-moving corpse bodies that they have to deal with. But so some, of the best trying... images, some of the best images are this, um, just them waiting in that courtyard. Right. Just standing and, like, you know, and like, well, we can wait you guys out. We're the, the literal undead assholes. Like, you know. Yeah. No, because that's their thing, right? They listen, so they would stop and listen. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I feel like there might be a rap joke there somewhere, but I didn't set it up properly. <laughs> but they don't really collaborate. That's really the problem. Yeah, that, yeah. that's what that's why they don't kill everybody in the end. If they'd only learn to collaborate better, you know. <laughs> I also wonder if when they're pounding on doors and things like that, since they can't see, it's them finding their way, and they just reach out in front of themselves with the sword Could to be. kind of mark where they're at. And then also it gives echo location. Like if there's people that they followed into a house that slammed a door on their face, they get enough of them together. Maybe they can find a way in. So they're summoning all the other ones by hitting the door or the wall. Mm -hmm. I mean, not necessarily be trying to break their way through. And am I trying to make an excuse as to why they're doing that? Possibly. But that's how I always took it was it was like an echo location, not necessarily like them doing sonar where they try to listen inside the house. But like to summon all the other ones, like, hey, there are still people here, too. And they're just waiting for enough numbers or just basically just waiting to be able to get in in some way, shape or form. But to let everybody else know that people are still alive. Yeah, no, I mean, that works. That's that's a good reading. I, I like that one. I mean, I mean, if we're told they can literally hear heartbeats. I mean, some some of the rules, I mean, I don't, I, I you know, they this is one of those, like remaking it, you know, mm-hmm. with sort of with I, I could kind of get on board with the remake of this one. Just in the sense of, I feel like a, a modern film audience would uh, kind of demand a a little bit more sense paid to the, uh, you know, well, exactly what can and can't they hear, you know, like, right. I, you know, and again, it's not, it's just sort of like, well, we're inside now, so they can't hear us. And yet, you know, and, and I know we're not supposed to get continuity between the films, but in the, in the first one, they're literally like tracking people by heartbeats. And it, it is a... It is a little bit like, well, why, you know, suddenly there's a window in the way and they can't hear you anymore. And that's kind of the, you know, that's just yeah. where my brain just sort of like goes, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taken out of the reality of this. But then again, maybe they can hear and they're just sort of waiting, but we're not really given. I mean, it, it's just kind of like, I, I don't, I don't quite get the rules that were supposed to be set up. Yeah, they're too loose. Here's the thing. I like this film better than the first film, but at the same time, like th- this film is far more ambitious than the first film is. Uh, Osorio is trying to put a lot of shit into this film. He's ripping off Night of the Living Dead. He- he's trying to, you know, he's trying to have the-, the human characters fighting against each other and all that stuff, for, like from Night of the Living Dead. He's got the siege narrative kind of thing going on in the last half of the film. He's trying to set up the mythology of the Templars again. He's basically redoing it. And he sort of falls short here and there. Creating a new origin for the Templars, I think, is kind of a problem for for this film. Where So we see the villagers burning the eyes of the Templars, who they already have on stakes that they're going to burn anyway. Why would you even... <laughs> you're you're going to burn their eyes eventually anyway if you set them on fire. So And they're, they're trying to make a point that, oh, they're burning their eyes, so they're blind. Their eyes are going to be burned out anyway if you set fire to the fucking hay under them on the stakes. They're going to be that's, burned. That's always bothered me as well, Lee, because I would watch them burn out their eyes and then I would watch them burn out the, burn them at the stake. And I'm like, but why does everything else but their eyes regenerate? Was it like a order of operations? 
kind of I, think that they don't well, rather I think, I think there's like a before death and after death thing that's happening here so well they, like they burn their eyes alive meaning they're blind when they die and therefore like you know like i sort of like that logic doesn't bother me at all as much well, as like, what can and can't they hear well, yeah, here's but, the other, yeah. here, here's the other thing, Daniel. How do they come back with their fucking hoods and shit on when their entire corpse and their hoods burn at the stake into nothingness? I have a very detailed and complicated <laughs> answer for this. <laughs> I have a complete, uh, you know, reading of this. It's based on subtle clues from within the film, and I'm going to give it to you right now. It looks fucking badass. <laughs> <laughs> I was like sitting back. I was opening up my drink. I'm like, all right, he's going to lay some science on us. And then uh, he, he dies on that joke. Brilliant. Uh, well, I, I, I can I can get with that, I guess. But uh, I think one of the other sort of things that sticks with me is this one. And again, I say I like this one more in the first film. But there are big instances here where the low budget really shows. Some of these, especially when they're throwing explosives at the Templars, uh, and also in the in the burning scene, like they're just obvious mannequins. The, like, the, yeah, mannequins. They're, they're clearly mannequins left over from the first film that they just sort of like moved over, and we're like, now you're now you're skeletons. It's fine. You know? I like this. This looks worse, and uh, I think Court can back me back me up on this one. City uh, of the Living Dead, where uh, when you get to the the finale of that film, there's some instances where it's the exact same effect, where it's just like a really badly made body on a stick that gets like knocked over and falls down basically kind of thing. Yeah. It's not even really like on a stick. There's a couple of scenes that are equivalent of basically like a clothesline hanger, like T <laughs> yeah. they just slipped, they just slipped a Templar cloak on, put the mask in place, maybe took a little bit of time to throw a little padding in to make it look like it's supposed to be that. And someone's holding it until the actor swings it. And then they let it go before it even connects for the hit. And then mm-hmm. the thing falls before they even hit it. <laughs> they do that a couple of times in the film. And yeah. the, the mannequins are real obvious, too, with even before they have the very end set piece where they're all standing there and then they fall over. And then they have some of the mannequins standing up. There's some of the stand in ones that they would use to pad out the numbers in the background where they would just kind of hold them while other Templars moved yeah. in. And like those guys, when they filmed them, when they were all standing still, they put some of those up front that they shouldn't have. They have two or three hero ones, like the one with all the red hair. I've yeah. seen that used on various covers before for this film, and I think that looks awesome. It's like half a beard left and like a little piece of a mustache, and that's mm-hmm. the one that I know him as Sigurd from Lorelei's Grass because I've had a crush on him ever since, but like when he reaches up and grabs that one and then it just kind of falls over, that's probably the best they had and the best that they set up, but the yeah. other ones really fall short. This must be one of the instances where, oh, the first film was a hit. We're going to make another one, but we're going to cut your budget a bit. We're going to cut it back. And, you know, Osorio has all these new ideas for this film. And, like, you can see, like, if he had the budget behind this, there's a lot of great stuff that would have went on in this film. Uh, if, if he had the money for the effects to do them properly, I think this is almost the best Blind Dead film in that in that regard. They could, they could have pulled it off like this. Like this would have been almost like a classic film, classic horror film that people would have remembered more. But I think kind of the budget kind of cuts it back and hurts it a bit where people just like, ah, I've never seen this. I don't want to see this kind of thing, which is really unfortunate because at the same time, really good film. I like it a lot. I like the, uh, well, the political intrigue in this it feels like there's two different films going on here. It feels like there's a European sex comedy happening at that commissioner's house. 
and then there's the horror film happening in the town. <laughs> it's like, because you got this commissioner guy or whatever the fuck he is, who's this, you know, shrunken, middle-aged, even beyond middle-aged man, and he's got this super hot fucking maid who's just tending to his every uh, whim, wearing a nightie. Uh, he gets a good glance of her ass as she bends over to do something for him. She, uh, she bends over, takes a nice look, takes a nice long bend to the degree that he can do the full, like, get my glasses out of the drawer, put them on, and then, like, straighten them thing, which <laughs> you really only see in, like, 60 sex comedies. So that, that's yeah. like, it, it just feels like it's a different movie going on there. And it, and, he, and every time he's on the phone with this mayor guy, he's, are you drunk? Are you drinking? And even she's pantomiming, oh, they're drinking. They're drinking. <laughs> I've got to step away for a second. I'm sorry. Right. I gotta, I'll be right back. I do want to note the coat that I know him as Sigger, but that coat that guy's wearing, or, or who's supposed to be our hero, yeah. that like suede sort of dark brown suede with the like the lamb's wool on the inside of it my father had that coat when i was a kid (laughs) and for the longest time i told him he was not allowed to get rid of that coat because if he ever wants to get rid of that coat i want him to give it to me yeah but my dad's had the one that had like the lined pockets so you could actually see the wool sticking out of oh, the yeah. top of the pockets total 70s even had the the wool was sticking out a little bit of the the end of the sleeves i think he still has that coat i hope i get it in his will nice <laughs> nice i fucking love that thing no that's a badass coat i mean tony kindle between this and laura lee's grasp his fucking wardrobe is fucking exquisite <laughs> You will not find many more like male leads in the 70s doing European cinema that have the wardrobe that he has. Maybe Fabio Testi. Uh, when we were talking about Lorelai's Grasp, Fabio Testi is probably the only other guy who can contest Tony Kendall as far as that shit goes. Yeah, I mean, Nasty was usually the producer on most of his films or was like deeply involved with it. And even he didn't dress himself as fancy and nice as what Tony Kendall ends up getting in the films I've seen him in. Yeah, but at least he's not—he's not walking around here like he doesn't have a girls' school to contend with. You know, he just has one chick who is definitely into him already. Uh, so he doesn't—he <laughs> does—he doesn't need the like the super tight pants every time he walks out. It's funny—he's supposed to be this fireworks expert. He, he comes into town, and th- th- this was probably the pitch to Tony Kindle, by the way. Like this was probably the pitch: uh, 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 Tony, you're going to be this ultimate badass called the uh, uh, Jack Marlowe in this film, and you're going to be a fireworks expert, and you're going to have sex with all the ladies. And he was like, "Sold. I'm on. I'm in it." Do I have to know anything about fireworks? No, because we're not going to show any of that shit in the film. We're not going to show you doing anything with fireworks other than throwing like dynamite at Templar fucking mannequins. That's it. Is that what they were trying to sell? Like, is that the whole reason he's a fireworks expert? So he gets like one scene where he throws fake dynamite. My God, that's that's the callback. That's that's what it is. I guess. I guess you're. I'm like, why didn't they have him fashion a rocket that could have launched and lit them on fire from afar? That's the thing. Like, if he's a fireworks expert, he should be shooting like Chinese fucking rockets at these fucking Templars from afar. Like, that would have been a great effect. I would have been into a really well done up a Templar mannequin, shoot a fucking rocket into it and set it on fire. That would have been great. I would have liked that effect. I would have, I would have been sold on that. I would have, I would have bought that shit. Like a third act, which is basically straw dogs, except it's just him like firing fireworks into (laughs) like, uh, you know, 
nice Templar zombie things. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. down. I'm down. Because when you when they throw like the dynamite stuff, which what does that have to do with fucking fireworks? I don't know. Like this is like a stick, like couple sticks of dynamite together. They throw them at the fucking Templar mannequins, and it just makes like a little explosion. And they don't even like if those were the actual Templars, they would have gone flying into the walls and shit. Those, we're, like, I'm I'm 500 years old, kept alive by supernatural magic, but. A slight puff of smoke and a little spark is enough to knock me over and make me dead for forever. That's the <laughs> shut up, Daniel. <laughs> You're using using that Chinese magic of gunpowder on me, and therefore, no, I it's that they catch losing... on fire and burn from the firework. I'm totally into that. I I dig <laughs> that idea. They I, should I like have. I, not just one really well made up, but like give me like five shots of five different middle made up Templars where you cut to it real quick, where he fires it, it hits and explodes mm-hmm. with like really decent editing, and then the thing catches on fire from it. Or even like they put a bottle on the end of the rocket so like it it throws and lights up, you know, like alcohol or something, right. and that that catches them up more. Like I love that idea. That we're already talking about how you remake the the Knights Templar films and have people fight them and stuff. That's one of the ways to do it right there. I yeah. really dig that. And that, that's if you remake in the 1980s. Now it's just like CGI. So it's like, oh, he'll shoot a CGI no, rocket. No, 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 no. You do it. You do it straight. You do it with no CGI remaking it in 2018. Like that's the thing. You find somebody who will actually do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Straight up. Uh, you know, well, but you do it. You do it with modern aesthetic sensibility. You know. Well, here's here's the thing. Like a couple people have done blind dead films in the subsequent years like especially in the last couple of years has been a, there's been a couple like fan films made and shit they're all terrible <laughs> I've, I've seen them all and they're all absolute fucking dog shit garbage because what you know what they focus on they focus on the rape and violence against oh. women it's like oh, oh my god that? Why are you doing because this? of course it's 2018 and yeah you know <laughs> There's only you know, you know what you know what was the really good part of these films the part where the women didn't listen that's the part that's you know? yeah yeah you know? no there's, so there's women there's, were taught their place that's what we need it's more there's, of a, there's only one I'll cite that's any any good it, it looks like it's shot on Super 8 I don't know if they just put a filter on it to make it look like that but it's called uh, Island of the Blind Dead you can see it on YouTube and it's not really a movie it's it's almost like a proof of concept more than anything else but it kind of gets the blind dead right more than any of these other things do. And the effects I'm, I'm imagining, I'm imagining a club dread kind of concept where <laughs> they're the blind dead, but they're like carrying like, uh, they're, they're like wearing Hawaiian shirts and shit. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there are a bunch of like party, like partying, like spring breakers who show up in bikinis and like you know, they're drinking mai tais and smoking a lot of weed, and then suddenly, like, oh, the blind dead are after us. And now I want this film to exist so mm-hmm. badly. Yeah, I, I agree. I was kind of picturing a Doctor Butcher MD style thing where they go down looking for the like someone you know or uh, whatever that was down in that area. They end up on the island that's you know not inhabited by these things, but the person they think may have gone to this other island and then they take them over there to the island of the blind dead and they were templars that were settled there that like you know pirates or somebody burned alive who knows and now anyone who sails to that island is doomed you know and they're still in the hawaiian shirts man i'm not going to take that away from you daniel they're still getting high they're still smoking the dope they're still drinking it up there's still girls in flowery 60s style bikinis just digging it 
and getting with it. All the all the effects are like practical. We're not going to take that away. The only difference is they're going to shoot it on digital and they're going to probably do like a 16 millimeter equivalent of like a 2K uh, yeah. camera, like the Bolex or something like that, and just go for it. And I think that would be your perfect aesthetic. And it would just, I think you could do a really great remake with this shit. And you don't go anywhere near the misogyny. If anything, you have like a warrior goddess that saves the day for everyone. Oh, you, if anything, you, you just cast women in it. Like that's the you, you get know. you get your final girl that you get from like just before dawn or something, where she's just like totally fucking up the blind dead. Like she might even like just stuff her fist down their throats. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's exactly the moment I was gonna go for. You know, she stuffs her fist down, uh, and there there is done. Yeah, yeah. Fuck that you, may be my that may be my all time favorite thing in a horror movie ever. Ever since I was a kid, and I hope that's yeah. why you're referencing it, Lee, because I love that death. Here. Yeah, yes. I love that where she just kills the monster by ram. It's in my it's in my promo. Obviously, I loved yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> no, I'm I'm in I'm in agreement. She's my favorite final girl of any slasher film. That, like that's my favorite slasher film. So uh, there you go. But, oh wow, well, I we, can totally see that. I love we, that film we too. Did that we did that film way back in the mm-hmm. day. Yeah, yeah. Anything else you guys want to say about this film before we sort of like get to the trivia and wrap up or? As long as you use that conversation about the coat, those—that's basically my final thoughts right there, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be in—that'll be in there. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, it's go- it's going to be much more of a free-form episode this time around. So, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, as the two trivia pieces I picked from this, Asario basically um, characterized the financing and production of this film as very difficult, very complicated. So, I guess you can kind of see that on screen. Apparently, he says he was never paid by the distributor of this film. Hold on, hold on. When 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 a uh, European film director slash producer describes the uh, film's financial history as very complicated, what they mean is the mob got involved. <laughs> yeah, either the mob got involved or a bunch of fly-by-night fucking producers, like just which which are kind of the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there, were, there was some shady money involved. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, uh, Dio Sari described the film as having political aspects, evidenced by the mayor who looks to abandon the town and save himself from the uh, Templars' attack. And then, of course, you also have the higher level of the uh, commissioner, or the fuck he's supposed to be, basically just like. I want to uh, sleep with my fucking hot maid. Fuck off, basically. And, and he has a little speech about, oh, the burden of being the upper class who has to deal with these peasants, you know, kind of shit. <laughs> so, that you know, that that's the little subtext there, basically. That's Oops. before the blind dead rise from the dead to seize the means of production and take over the town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that the, the blind dead is a manifestation of working class quite works no, as, they're, they're, as, they're, a, they're, as a literal metaphor, but uh, I like where you're leading. I like where in our remake, we'll definitely have to include that element, you know? Yeah. Cause the blind didn't hit in this are basically just past oppressors taking back what new oppressors were running. This is basically what they're doing. They're basically just, they're basically just taking back. Their so, power so really, the it's all about the like cyclical nature of uh, basically power moves between different uh, realms of uh, middle to middle upper class people and the actual working class, which are the people actually who are slaughtered in mass in the at the party who are just trying to have a good time mm-hmm. and drink some whiskey out of tall glasses, which is a thing that totally. <laughs> I like it. Um, those people all get you know. There we go. Yeah, I do want to mention the music uh, by this, and this is criminal that this is uh, this is a thing. Like, I did some deep research on the, the soundtrack for this. Why, why are you laughing? 
<laughs> no, because either you're joking and you looked at it for ten seconds, or you actually did deep research. And I either spent, way, I think it's. I, li- I, I literally spent hours looking for the soundtrack for this. I believe it. I, I believe it completely. Your uh, dedication <laughs> to this podcast knows no bounds. Uh, so the music by this, which is. Which is uh, <laughs> no, no. I mean that. Like, I'm sorry. I sound sarcastic. Oh my god! <laughs> it's amazing. I think it's great. Mom, Dad, are you getting a divorce? <laughs> it might happen. You've um, already invited me to come on this podcast, your podcast, permanently, Court. So you know, <laughs> Matt, if you if you ever listen to this, here here's 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 the uh, spark that sets it off, buddy. Come in, drink with me. <laughs> But the the music by Anton. Oh well, shit! Is Cork gonna make me be sober? That's uh, well, that might be a. Oh wow, wow, yeah. The, mu- <laughs> the, the music by Anton Garcia Ebrill, like uh, the soundtrack, is basically just like this sort of uh, almost atonal, like monk chanting stuff, and these heavy sort of like bass heavy chords and shit like that. It's really fucking good. Sadly, it's not available anywhere. Like, apparently, the research I was doing, I was going through forums and stuff. Like, is there a copy of this anywhere? It's one of these unfortunate things where a lot of this European stuff, just the masters were destroyed or disappeared or rotted away. So you can't actually commercially find this music anywhere. Uh, and Abril is a fairly prolific composer with a lot of his stuff available. But this is just one of the things that's not available. But I, I just wanted to point out it's really good stuff. And the limited stuff that you can find, you can see isolated pieces on YouTube and stuff. Really worth checking out. DVD info for both these films. So as we mentioned, the Anchor Bay was the first DVD from 1998. And those were severely compromised, cut-up versions. Uh, so I would not recommend trying those out if you could find them. If you can find them, I'd be amazed. You'd probably have to pay like $8,000 on eBay for them at this point. Uh, uh, I think I still have mine if someone makes wants to make an offer. <laughs> $8,000 for Court Saps for his Anchor Bay DVDs. If you, if, you, if you have $8,000, please donate to our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, at least give us like 20 bucks for li- putting you in that direction you know if you're going to send us eight thousand dollars we'll start up a patreon if you want to give it to us eight thousand dollars would fund this podcast forever yeah it really we would will, we will be making this podcast for 40 years based on eight thousand dollars <laughs> it would keep you in beer for most of that time too it would, yeah, it would keep it would us in beer for all of like three months it would be great yeah yeah <laughs> Especially in my prices, holy shit. Um, so most people are familiar with the 2005 Coffin box set uh, from Blue Underground. is the one I uh, own. That's another one that's sort of hard to get now. But it was also released in 2006 as standalone discs. And in 2016, Blue Underground re-released all these as a four-disc set as well. Just not with the uh, Coffin box set thing. But no Blu-ray so far for these films. And you know what? I don't necessarily want to see these mannequins being set on fire on Blu-ray. <laughs> uh, I, do. I, I don't do you? Okay. Uh, for me, I original camera negative. I need to see everything. <laughs> <laughs> I can live without it personally, but the blue underground stuff is really great though. Like it, it looks fucking awesome. They, they did more respect to the, these films than anyone would. You, you get the English versions and the Spanish versions. You get trailers, you get a little few extras here and there, but, um, 
it, it's it's fun to compare and contrast the uh, English and Spanish as well, with, like with the subtitles on, and just see how vastly different some of the dialogue and shit is in these films. It's actually hilarious. I actually did it once and just like sort of watched some of these. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> the translations are so bad but yeah so court thank you very much for uh joining us tonight uh it was an absolute pleasure to have you so please please pimp all your podcasting shit and let the people know where they can find you if they're already you know if if they're fucking heathens who are not aware of cinema psyops at this point uh absolutely uh I actually want to pimp my lesser talked about show. I've got to get better at doing this, but I do a show with two other gentlemen and we're so far apart in the globe that if any of us moves in either direction, we probably will get closer to one of the other two. We're like as far away from each other as you could possibly get. One's in Australia, one's in England, and I'm in the middle of the country in Nebraska and Omaha right now. And that's obsessive cinema discourse. We try to do it monthly, but schedules have been conflicting and everything like that. And that time disparaging separation really makes it that much worse to do it in. But uh, when we try to get one out, we always have fun doing it. And we basically just go through a movie and nitpick every kind of detail. Very similar to the, some of the stuff that we talked about tonight uh, where we were like, really like that, that oven mitt thing that with mm-hmm. the duct tape on the first movie, I could not let that go. It's still bugging me. And that's kind of the sort of thing that we would focus on, but we still lovingly talk about that and even you know things that we enjoy besides that that's obsessive cinema discourse and of course cinema psyops which is my flagship show as uh bo the leader of my network has referred to it as a pirate ship with a tattered flag sailing seas of questionable movies long may she sail that's also on legion podcast so it's legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops for my main show ocd's on there as well that's obsessive cinema discourse not sure exactly of the direct url for that but if you go to legion podcast you're going to find both my shows as well as some amazing amazing shows i i'm very proud to be a part of this network we're super inclusive we're very supportive of each other and we stand for taking care of your fellow man in ways that i just can't even go into detail to describe i really love being a part of legion podcast and i'm not just a shill for them I fought to get on this network. <laughs> yeah, let's just say there's another podcast network out there that's kind of run by a dick. Not going to same names, and I'm not going to... No. no, I'm not going to... Yeah, no. I, but I, I think people will know if, if they read into it. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, both these podcasts are fucking awesome. And when you hear... <laughs> Legion Podcast is very incestuous, so you, you'll hear a lot of the same hosts on different podcasts all the time. So whatever you hear Cordon is a quality podcast, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thank you very much. You're so kind. I don't know if I even deserve that. Yeah, I'm I'm actually like pumping this podcast. I mean, podcast I can tell up. you there's one podcast that Court has appeared on that uh is not necessarily a quality podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to make us look better, Daniel. What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> Anyone where Court makes makes podcast better just by his appearance. That's the uh, <laughs> yeah. certainly the case here. Uh Daniel, where can people find you and what are you doing? Not much. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. If you want to mostly learn about what Nazis are doing these days, that's kind of the thing that I'm doing kind of full time. Uh, although I have a day job, so, you know, uh, do that as you will. Um, I do have uh, another podcast called Wrong with Authority, where we talk about movies about history and the history they're about. 
You can check that out at wrongwithauthority.blogspot.com. Voice Spaceman, the Doctor Who podcast. Doctor Who is back, and I think that podcast is coming back. Uh, maybe I'll record this weekend and get something up. Uh, you'll start to see episodes in the next couple of weeks, almost certainly. So, you know, yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Nice. And you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Facebook links. Join the Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. It's not full of dicks, so it's one of those safe <laughs> Facebook groups where everyone's kind of nice. There's not a lot of yeah. shit. There are only a handful of people in it, and so therefore, you know, we keep the dicks out, you know? Yeah. When Lee and I are the biggest assholes in the group, you know you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, because we hardly ever attack the people who are joined up to it, so, you know. <laughs> we, we we probably won't attack you. You know, it probably won't happen. No, no. Only when you come on the podcast do I like so break your balls. That's the you know <laughs> yeah, strategy. Yeah, yeah. I feel like yeah. I got off light, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I was polite to, but you know, when Paul shows up on this podcast, on the rare occasions he bothers to show up, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> when he even more rarely bothers to watch the movie, you know, those are balls worth busting. Then, in that case. Yeah. Mm. So next time we'll cover the last two Blind Dead films on this podcast. You're going to hear us on Cinema Psyops fairly soon, where we uh, cover Mansion of the Living Dead, which is not really a Blind Dead film, but we'll get into that when we actually cover that on Court's Fine Podcast. And until then, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you when we see you. Goodbye. Cheers.
You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Facebook group links, as well as podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>